In this episode of the Brawn Body Podcast, we're excited to welcome Dr. Matthew Walco back to the show. If you did not listen to episode 101 yet, highly recommend you go back and give that episode a listen before starting here. In that episode, we kind of talk about who Dr. Walco is, what he's done, and talked about his journey, some insights and knowledge and wisdom that he's picked up and shared uh, with all of us. So, in this episode, we're talking about heart rate variability, kind of a 10 cent buzzword, right? What is it? What does it mean? How can I track it? How can I improve heart rate variability? And I figured who better to have on the show to talk about this than someone who has literally researched it for years and years and years. Dr. Walker really knows his stuff, and this is an incredible episode that should leave you with a good understanding of what you can start doing to improve your heart rate variability and your overall health, what HRV is and how you can track it and measure it at a relatively low cost using some cool devices, and overall just a better understanding of your health and how you have the ability to make positive impact on your health every single day, little by little, small changes. As always, our episodes are sponsored by CTM Band, Compression Tension Movement. This is my favorite recovery band and recovery company. So they make rumble rollers and these really cool compression tension movement bands, kind of like flossing with a deep tissue massage effect. I really like their products and I'm not the only one. They're used by NFL players, by Kentucky Derby winning horse jockeys, by Boston Marathon champion runners, and so many more people. Their founder, Dr. Kyle Bowling, is an incredible person. We've had him on the podcast a while back. We talked about his business journey. We talked about his journey through school. We talked about uh, mobility and stability and a lot of other cool concepts. So go back and listen to those episodes if you haven't yet. But if you would like to get yourself some of their recovery products, you can click the link below or just go to ctm.band, that's the website, and check out their website, figure out what you're going to buy, and then use the coupon code BRAWN10, B-R-A-W-N-1-0. That's going to get you 10% off your order from CTM Band. As always, our episodes are also brought to you by the Brawn Body training programs, right? So our business is not just a podcast. We also do a lot of health and fitness training for people. We do consultations. We do movement screenings. We'll do uh, overhauls of programs. We'll do custom programming. We do in-person. We do online, virtual. You name it, we've probably done it before. We've worked with people who want to lose weight and drop belt sizes. We've worked with people who want to get ready for the military. We've worked with sports-specific athletes. We've worked with former athletes. We've worked with people across all ages of life. So we're happy to make you our next success story. If you would like to inquire more about our training, head over to Instagram, shoot us a direct message, or email us at brawnbodytraining at gmail.com. Now with that, that's going to take us into today's episode. Enjoy the show. Dr. Walco, welcome back to the show. Excited to have you. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be back. So I know we've talked before. A lot of your research is really focused on heart rate variability, HRV. Can you kind of explain what that is and why it's so important? 
Sure. So what we look at when we measure HRV is uh, in nuts and bolts, it's the amount of time in between each heartbeat. Um, so when we look at an ECG, so the electronic uh, representation of the electrical signals of the heart, then that's going to correspond then to what we know as the pulse. Um, the pulse kind of corresponds to something called your R wave. And what we'll actually do is measure the distance between each R wave in milliseconds. And what we find is that um, that tells us a lot of information about the person's health. Um, it's kind of interesting. We tend to think of the, the heart being such a rhythmic you know, very steady sort of organ, particularly when we're at rest, but really a healthy heart is supposed to kind of have an up and down uh, variation. So it should have that variation, that heart rate variability should be pretty big. Um, my dad's an old car guy. He's been um, a mechanic since long before I was born. And, uh, you know, I grew up helping him fix cars. And it's kind of funny. Uh, we tend to think of today's cars being the fuel injected cars that run so smoothly. Uh, and when you're sitting at idle, you know, waiting for, you know, whatever's next in, in line um, at the stoplight, um, it runs perfectly, you know, 800 RPM. Well, your heart doesn't do that if you're healthy. What it actually should do is be like an old carbureted car. It should kind of race a little bit and then chill out a little bit and kind of go up and down. Um, yeah, it, it's... Uh, a little bit like, I liken it to taking somebody's temperature. Um, mm -hmm. You know, when you look at somebody and they say, all right, you've got a relatively normal temperature versus having a fever, we can actually use HRV uh, in the same way. Um, but it of course tells us some different information. So really what we're looking at driving HRV is the balance between your parasympathetic system and your sympathetic system. Uh, and that's kind of putting it very simply. Um, but what we need to remember is that your body is um, used to being a cave person. You know, I mean, we are certainly now, you know, we're, I'm indoors here, I'm in climate control, I'm not being attacked by anything. But mm -hmm. really, the bottom part of our nervous system, we've been built to run away from the saber-toothed tiger and to go track down dinner. Um, so we have to be ready for anything at any time. So we've got to be able to take advantage of being able to rest when we can, and we've got to be able to turn on that sympathetic system and run away or run towards something at a moment's notice. Healthy people are able to do that, and we can look at that evidence in the HRV at rest. For sure. The, uh, it's kind of like having the ability to go zero to 100 and 100 to zero in you know blink of an eye and yep. like you said those daily fluctuations are normal it's good it shows mm -hmm. that you have this kind of balance and battle between your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system and one is not too dominant over the other it's not too um controlling so to speak because when one takes over and things go out of balance that's when problems start to arise most of the time so if we want to improve our heart rate variability to kind of improve our cardiac health how should we go about doing that how can we kind of keep these two systems in balance yet increase the amount of fight they have with one another so to speak well you know i, I think there are a lot of different ways you can do that and certainly putting my therapist hat on you'd have to do a quick evaluation and find out what's causing the problem in the first place but i think generally what we find is that when people are having problems that are noted uh, by variations in their heart rate variability. I can't think of anybody, uh, aside from people with significant dysrhythmias that kind of don't count, um, while they count in a different way. It, we tend to see an overflow of sympathetic output. 
Uh, usually people aren't too chilled. It isn't like they're so relaxed that their heart rate variability is too messed up. Um, it's more a case of they're overloaded with sympathetic tone and they're out of balance that way. And as a result, the treatment there uh, and, and the gaining of some cardiac health and overall health is going to be aimed at looking at what we can do to reduce our stress or at least finding outlets uh, to the things that are causing stress in the first place. Um, you know, little things uh, like improving your recovery if you are somebody who's exercising, um, improving your diet. So if you're obese, it might be a case of reducing your, your caloric intake, reducing your TNF alpha, reducing your overall inflammation, helping to bring your HRV down that way. Um, you know, certainly how much time are you spending on your screen? Uh, how much time are you sitting watching something instead of maybe getting up and doing something else? Right. All those things can be implicated. For sure. And uh, we know a little bit about the screen time and heart rate variability correlation because we've been kind of looking into that together. A we certainly bit, have. Um, but no, I like how you kind of brought up it's not just one thing that you're doing. It's everything all these different lifestyle factors and habits so you kind of have to be honest with yourself and kind of consider everything if you are really serious about this and start with the simple stuff kind of like we talked about on the monday episode one thing at a time so maybe that one thing starts with stress level and a quick way to check that is your breathing is your breathing slow and deep or is it kind of you know in out real quick upper chest huff puff and if it's quick, if it's short, shallow, kind of labored, maybe even a little noisy, then I would think modulating stress would be a great place to start. And whether that's removing a stressor from your life or finding ways to just relax more. And maybe at first that is just kind of sitting down, throwing on a music, some podcasts, something that can kind of help you relax or just sitting breathing, meditating, whatever, and just being present in a moment, find one thing that you can improve and then kind of go from there. And maybe that next step is, let's say it's your weight, for example. Um, and, you know, I don't want anyone to kind of hear this the wrong way. I'm all for things like body positivity. However, we do have to be honest at the end of the day, you know, if you're five foot two and 450 pounds, I'm more concerned about your physical health and the implications of that long term, then if you feel comfortable in that state or not. So mm -hmm. kind of taking steps to reverse that. And like you said, maybe it's diet to start, maybe it's exercise to start. Everyone starts in a different spot. But I think if you're serious about this, kind of do that little gut check, that little life analysis, lay out all those different things you're doing. You'd be amazed at how many of these things you can find just on your own by thinking about these things and then break it down one step at a time. And this is another place too, where someone like Dr. Welko or someone who's very well trained in the health and fitness world should be able to help you. Um, I wouldn't necessarily consider, you know, your average personal trainer uh, to be that person. I, I'm not one to knock on personal trainers too much. I am one myself, but you really want someone who's trained about that cardiovascular system and who has some knowledge of the autonomic nervous system. And a lot of the CPT books don't really stress that. No, they don't. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the CPT books are, are probably focused more at um, performance than aesthetics, uh, more so than 
just general health. And I'm not, and I don't know for sure. Um, I haven't taken the CPT exam and I have taken the CSCS. I know that that was the focus there. Um, yeah, but I think the big thing really when it comes down to starting to make these changes is a few things. Number one, remembering that this is definitely a marathon and by no means a sprint. Um, you know, it, it, if you use the example of somebody who might be overweight, they didn't wake up yesterday overweight. It took years for that person to gain um, the body mass that maybe now they don't want. So it's not going to melt off overnight. It would be cool if it did, but it won't. So you've got to get that mindset adjusted. Um, the second thing I think people have to do when they make these decisions is remember that it honest to God is possible. You know, that old idea of the 1% a day makes a big difference. And one tiny little rung up the ladder is still a move up the ladder um, because ultimately you're heading in the correct direction. If you get people to believe in themselves a little bit and you get people to accept the reality that we're looking at a long-term goal, I think you're going to be in good shape. At that point then, I don't want to say it doesn't matter what they start with, but the big thing is they start somewhere. For sure. Yeah. Everyone starts in a different spot. And that starting spot is different for everyone. But yeah. all that matters is you start. Uh, I can't echo that loud enough. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of takes us into our next topic of different things that people do daily to kind of sabotage their HRV or improve it. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's been an interesting point. And I mean, I hope that's something people kind of look into on their own because there's, we could exhaust the amount of possibilities on how to improve your HRV. We could mm. talk about box breathing. We could talk about blue light glasses. We could talk about all these fancy things, but ultimately, you know, we're just kind of pointing you in the right direction. And now it's kind of your turn to kind of take control of your health, right? It's your health. Take control of it. Take charge of it. Get curious, get interested in it. Do a little reading, do a little research, reach out if you have questions about it. Obviously, we're here to help. But at the end of the day, you know, we can't sit here and exhaust every possible option. And we can't tell you exactly what's going to work for you and what's not going to work for you because every person's different, right? Everyone has unique anatomy, physiology, different receptor subtypes, different amounts of receptors. So kind of play around with it, get curious, get excited, and find what works for you. Um, but kind of with that, there are some trends in the research about what HRV looks like in adults, what HRV looks like in athletes. Uh, what have you noticed about HRV in the average American adult as far as the research goes and maybe what it looks like in the higher level athletes? Um, I think generally, and I'm going to be terrible about citing uh, specific studies at the moment. <laughs> when you read that much, um, some stuff doesn't tend to stick out. Um, but I think the trend is that certainly people that are performance-based and tend to be more athletic as a trend uh, tend to have better HRV, if you want to call it that. And when we look at that um, concept of better versus worse, we're looking at a better variation, a higher variation, uh, as opposed to a lower variation when we measure that at rest. Um, you know, typically that corresponds with a, a lot of the lifestyle choices that athletes might be making. Um, they tend to be more focused on nutrition. Um, certainly, they tend to be more focused on cardiovascular fitness, strength fitness. Um, now, one of the things that I haven't seen data on, but I would be curious to look at, would be the people that are at the extremes of performance. And I wonder, uh, those folks that are riding the edge, right at the envelope of high performance pushing into over 
overreaching and then overtraining, um, I would imagine that their HRV might start to suffer somewhat. Uh, maybe not to the extent that the quote average person who has abnormal HRV uh, or is, has an unhealthy level, but I would imagine it's probably closer uh, than somebody who's got a good level of fitness, a good level of muscular fitness, well-trained aerobically, uh, takes good care of themselves, but doesn't push to the ragged edge. Right, for sure. I like how you kind of brought up that point on overtraining, overreaching, mm -hmm. right? Exercise is good. We can talk all about that, but you can overdo it. And there's certain signs that you should kind of look out for if you're overtraining. If you start waking up with extreme muscle soreness, fatigue, just overall disinterest in things, maybe you're pushing too hard for too long. And mm -hmm. if that's starting to happen, you're going to do more harm than good. I like how you point out that, you know, exercise is a great thing. We love to do it. But there's a point where things have diminishing returns. Um, I know you also teach pharmacology and in pharmacology, one of the things that's stressed is minimum effective dose and therapeutic window. So when you yeah. dose a medication, there's a certain range that's the sweet spot. And if you go less than that, you get no effect. And if you go too high, you get too many harmful side effects and exercise as it relates to heart rate variability works the same way for lack of a better way to put it. If you go too much, it has detrimental effects. If you don't do enough, you're not going to get any effect. So you kind of have to find that Goldilocks zone, that middle ground. And if you can do that, whether you're an elite athlete or an average person, you're going to see positive effects that continue to compound over time. And, you know, that's why people like elite athletes, like take Tom Brady, for example, they take their recovery so seriously for a reason. They know about that overtraining effect and they avoid it like the plague, um, not not meaning to make uh, make a COVID reference there, but um, <laughs> but it's true. No, yeah. It, yeah, I think that's what a lot of athletes sometimes forget. You know, you, you provide the stimulus for improvement in the gym, on the track, on the road, but you're building muscle tissue. You're you're improving your body uh, when you're sleeping and in the kitchen. Uh, and if you don't have that balance, um, if you're not recovering, oh my gosh, you, you can work as hard as you want to in the gym. You're not going to make any progress. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think that's kind of going into exercise fizz a little bit real quick. That's something that people don't always recognize, right? Exercise, the act of doing it breaks down muscle. It doesn't build it right away, right? After you finish exercise, your muscles kind of resemble Swiss cheese. They're kind of beat up, torn up, and they need time to recover and replenish. That's why we emphasize the importance of sleep, of stretching, of movement, of you know adequate protein intake, that sort of thing. So it's kind of interesting how this is really such a big picture thing and not just a one and done kind of quick in and out, so to speak. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, something else that I often think of, and this is maybe my old age starting to show, but if you look around uh, to the people that tend to be the healthiest as they get older, if you look at the folks that are in the gym who are consistently there all the time um, over years and they're still there, they're the ones that are figured out how to push hard enough to make a difference, to make themselves happy, to improve the performance that they want. But they're not driving themselves nuts. They give themselves adequate rest and recovery. And they also know when to pack it in and go home. Um, yeah. But like I said, something else to think about is they're the ones that are there consistently day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year. Uh, so much of that improvement is just hallmarked by consistency. For sure. And 
that consistency looks different for everyone. For some people, consistency is running seven miles a day. For other people, consistency is getting up and going for a walk. And we've touched on this time and time again. It looks different for everyone. Everyone starts at a different place, but just getting up and doing something is so much better than just writing the day off and giving up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, we talk a lot about gut checks. And um, I think when people are trying to figure out, are they working hard enough? Um, often when you are somebody who's performing, uh, you're driven to perform. I think most people, if they're able to ask themselves, did I work hard enough? And maybe they didn't quite push it as hard as they could have. I think in your heart of hearts, if you're honest with yourself at the end of the day, at the end of that workout, at the end of that run or whatever, if you feel like you gave it all, you're going to be confident in that if you're able to assess yourself, particularly once you've had some experience doing it. If you walk away going, oh, I could have gotten that other rep, well, maybe you could have put it in. For sure. Yeah. At a, a kind of self-honesty. And that's something that kind of comes too with time and experience, right? You know, you don't go out on a run day one and know exactly where your barriers and limits are. It kind of comes with repetition and experience. So the more you do it, the more you're going to kind of learn, hey, I can kind of work here. Hey, I need to, you know, tone it down a little bit here. Uh, and one of the things that you actually have taught us quite a bit about is the RPE scale, rating a perceived <laughs> exertion scale. And basically when you're doing something, just rate it on difficulty zero to 10. And you'll kind of figure out over time where those limits are, especially if you track those numbers, right? Uh, this is something that Tim Ferriss is huge on. He talks a lot in his book, Four Hour Body, about tracking numbers. And, you know, he uses Microsoft Excel or Google Sheets or one of the ones like that. Um, I think they're free on the internet. I think Google Sheets is anyway. So there's not even a cost to do this, just a little time investment. You know, write down whatever your activity was and write down your rating of perceived exertion and kind of look how that changes over time. And then maybe add another layer to it. Maybe add sleep. So maybe you slept seven hours one night, you did a three mile run and your RPE was a five. Maybe the next day you go on that same three mile run, but you only got four hours of sleep and your RPE is a nine. So yeah. just by keeping track of some basic numbers here, you're going to see how everything starts to connect. And I know this episode is about heart rate variability. All these things we're talking about impact heart rate variability, your sleep, oh, absolutely. your perceived exertion, how hard you're working, uh, the amount of cardiovascular exercise endurance you're doing. So it all kind of funnels right back into that picture of HRV. Um, it's just kind of getting a little more specific into the nitty gritty details of how to work on it and not just staying at that 30,000 foot view, so to speak. Absolutely. You know, and to parallel that, I think you bring up a good point. Um, I kind of look at this like taking your temperature and, you know, um, one of the things we do when you get out of bed every morning and you kind of go, oh, how am I feeling today? You kind of do that when you're standing there brushing your teeth in the morning. Um, HRV is a nice way um, that you can track it, honestly, with your phone, and, and they're fairly reliable or at least consistent. Um, to give you a, a number that you can track and say, look, uh, this is how my HRV looks today. Uh, oftentimes, I know that Apple and some other um, devices honestly will track that through your watch and you can get readings um, on a daily basis. So if you were to look at that over the course of a few months and then tie that into a few of the other things that you track, you might be able to find some trends. For sure. Um, you know, little things like, oh, gee, finals week, my HRV kind of stunk. 
no surprise there. Uh, right. Maybe that's a bit of an extreme example, but that might help the person who is going through different mesocycles uh, of periodization training, perhaps. Yep, for sure. Um, kind of on that HRV device topic, have you found that one device is superior to the others right now? There's so many out there, Aura Ring, Whoop, uh, Apple, Garmin, you name it. Is one more accurate or are they still kind of got a way to go? I think, I well, I haven't seen the, the current OS data. Uh, so, I mean, I, last time I checked really in depth was a little while ago and all the manufacturers has published that, you know, that they're fairly reliable. Um, but what I can say is that I've used uh, a couple different devices and seen a couple different devices and they've given me close numbers, but not exactly the same numbers in the same person. So I think we still have uh, a bit of a ways to go. That being said, um, all the devices that are out there that have been uh, approved to be used, I mean, they're solid. They, they've passed uh, rigors uh, of manufacturer's tests. So really, I kind of liken this to your bathroom scale. You, know, mm -hmm. you might be 182 pounds uh, upstairs in the bathroom and you go to the doctor's office and they say, nope, you're 184 and you're wearing the same clothes. Okay, fine. But are you consistently 182 the next morning in your, in your bathroom? Are you consistently 184 at the physician's office? Take the same approach. If you're about the same number every day on your HRV device, whichever one you're using, I think that's good enough. Yeah, for sure. Just kind of pick a device, stick with it every day and maybe even check at the same time. You mentioned the bathroom scale analogy. It's mm -hmm. going to fluctuate throughout the day. So if you want to check your daily HRV, check it, you know, when you wake up every day and wake up at the same time, that'll be your most consistent reading every single day. Not, you know, check it at 6 a.m. one day and 10 a.m. the next and 5 p.m. the next. You know, it varies and fluctuates throughout the day, kind of like we've talked about. So being consistent, as we've talked about multiple times, consistency is the key. Um, Absolutely. And all of these things that we've talked about, optimizing heart rate variability, HRV, if you have good heart rate variability, then your likelihood of having something called cardiovascular disease, heart disease, is a lot lower. Heart disease is a huge problem in America. It's the number one killer in our nation. And it's kind of crazy to think that, you know, we look at things like cancer. We look at things like the pandemic itself. We look at mass shootings. There's a lot of terrible things that happen, but heart disease is still number one as far as what kills American people. And heart rate variability, as we've talked about, is kind of poor in a lot of our population from what we're seeing, right? We can look at the daily lifestyle habits of most Americans. Uh, there was a study, uh, it was in a book that was published by Mike Matthews um, in 2018. I forget the uh, exact study name right off. I think it was done by NYU uh, that looked at the amount of screen time someone spends every day. And looking at television and computer screens and all these different screens, the average American spends eight hours a day on all their different screens. That has a huge effect on heart rate variability. So we can kind of hypothesize where we are as far as cardiovascular electric health is. So kind of combining everything that we've talked about thus far, what steps should we start taking to kind of reverse this slope of heart disease? Because the numbers keep getting worse and instead of going into tertiary secondary prevention, I think it's time we kind of shift it to more of a primary prevention. Let's cut things at the roots uh, kind of focus because what we've been doing clearly isn't working. 
For a lot of folks, it hasn't. No, um, you know, and I, I think just like anything, there are tons of complex interactions that I think combine to give us what we see as the overall uh, average American, if that makes any sense. But to answer your question, I think, you know, going back to what we talked about before, accept that you can make some positive changes, accept that it's going to be a marathon run uh, of change because you want your heart's got to beat every time until you decide to leave the planet or until somebody calls you home. So uh, you might as well do what you can to improve the health of the organ that's going to carry you all the way through. Um, you know, regarding the screen time, um, you know that we've been, I've done a couple of studies that have looked at the combination, the correlation between anxiety, uh, screen time, and, and then HRV. And uh, hopefully we're getting published uh, in the next year. Um, I'm actually going to be on sabbatical in the fall, crunching a bunch of numbers and getting some manuscripts out, um, as well as finishing up some studies. What we're finding is that there are preliminarily um, some data that show us that they're all correlated pretty strongly. Um, the more time you spend on your phone, uh, the more that affects uh, your sympathetic um, system. I mean, if you think about it, screens are just another form of stimulus. It's an electronic stimulus is going to stimulate your brain. And while a certain amount is okay, too much is probably not a good thing uh, for a lot of reasons. Number one, the longer you stare at a screen, number one, you're probably not doing it while you're running. Mm -hmm. uh, you're probably sitting there on the couch and, you know, we're all human. So you sit around the couch for a while, gee, I'm hungry, where's the chips? And then before you know it, that spiral, that snowball starts. Um, so maybe the thing is I'm going to set my phone uh, to set up those little daily minder alarms that say, hey, look, I've been on my screen for two hours. It's time to put the thing down. You know, it's like the Netflix thing that says, hey, are you still watching? Yep. Your phone should really pop up and go, dude, don't you need something else to do right now? <laughs> or take the dog for a walk, that kind of thing. I, I think little changes like that will start to snowball and see people's health improve. For sure. For sure. On that technology piece, do you think that the culprit is the sedentary time that comes with it? Or do you think it's the light emissions and how they impact our kind of internal physiology, especially our brain and our circadian rhythm? Or do you think it's maybe the electromagnetic frequencies that get emitted from things like a cell phone or a tablet or a laptop uh, that kind of mess with our body's internal physiology? Or do you think it's kind of a combination of all three? I think it may be a combination. I'm probably, you know, and I don't have uh, research to back me up at, at the moment, um, but I do know that they looked at, you know, just EM frequency radiation and, and risk of things like brain cancer, that kind of stuff. Uh, some of the studies that I read, at least, if not Frank got refuted it, it said it was extremely unlikely. But I do think um, the different wavelengths of light that are sort of unnatural uh, probably play with our brains. I think the overall sympathetic stimulus that we get uh, is robbing us of some of our downtime. You know, even though we're sitting there and we're sedentary, so instead of taking a walk, we're sitting there watching TV, but we're not relaxing. Uh, we're involved in whatever we're watching to a certain extent, and we're not allowing um, the bottom part of our brain to relax. And uh, I'll also throw this in, if we're doing this right before bed, we're not giving our brains, our subconscious time to kind of chill out, process what happened during the day. We're just giving it noise all the time instead. So I, I think that is probably the bigger culprit than anything else. I think you can probably get people that, you know, run six miles a day, but spend six hours on their phones to have somewhat attenuated effects, but you're still going to see effects there as opposed to somebody that doesn't really use a, a device like that. For sure. No, uh, for sure. 
and you know we kind of started talking about some of these more intricate physiological workings and uh there's a lot more here that we could kind of peel back if we had hmm. the time things like pgc1 alpha and amp k balance and how things like mitochondrial density can impact our cardiovascular health um, and that's something that I'm kind of hoping we can actually dive into in the future. I'm hoping to get Dr. Walco, Dr. Hussey, and some of our other uh, distinguished uh, guests who have researched metabolic health, cardiovascular health. I'm hoping to kind of get everyone together for a little bit of a summit, for lack of a better way to put it, on how to optimize your metabolism, your metabolic and heart health. Um, so kind of stay tuned for that. We're in the preliminary kind of planning phases, but hopefully in the near future, we can kind of put something together and kind of geek out into some of this more uh, intricate, complex stuff and get lost in the weeds a little bit there. Um, but with that, Dr. Walker, do you have anything else that you'd like to share kind of about heart rate variability and cardiovascular health? I think if I could leave somebody with a, a lasting message, it would be to make sure that you keep it simple. Yeah. Um, you know, I've often said, and, and you've had me in class, Dan, you know, when it comes to an exercise program, everybody asks about what's the best exercise program I should do? What, what's perfect for me? And my answer, carte blanche, is the one you'll actually do. Mm -hmm. Because you could have the coolest exercise program in the universe with all these fantastic intricacies, and you're like, eh, I never do it. It isn't going to work. It's like having a car that you never take out of the garage. So ultimately, you keep it simple. Like we said, find a few things that you think you can make a positive direction for, believe that they're going to work and give it your all and see what happens. Yep. And you don't need access to a gym to do that. You don't need mm -hmm. fancy equipment to do that. And your workout might not even be what we consider traditional exercise, right? It might not be running. It might not be biking. It might be things like breath work and breathing. It might be things like postural correction it might look a little different than what we consider normal. And that's okay. Like we've said before, everyone needs different things. And as long as you stick with it, as Dr. Walco just said, you will succeed with consistency. Uh, you know, we run into this problem a lot with periodization. Uh, we mentioned before you have a CSCS. NSCA is huge on periodization, right? Mm -hmm. Cycles. The problem I've run into is no one can ever stay the course to complete the cycles, right? There's certain sets and reps and weight calculations you have to meet. There's certain things you have to do on certain weeks. And, you know, if you miss a workout or two, kind of gets thrown off and things don't fit as pretty. Um, so while there's a lot of cool things out there, if you can keep up with them, at the end of the day, just show up and keep with it. Um, I think that's a great takeaway, a great message and just great advice. And that's not something for just exercise, but life overall, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you show up to your job every single day, you're probably going to get a lot better results out of whatever you're doing, whatever project you're working on, whoever you're helping, teaching, instructing, whatever it is, than someone who shows up half the time, but works twice as hard when they're there. So just show up and keep chipping away every single day, little by little, 1% every day, instead of trying to eat an elephant chunk by chunk. Just go one bite at a time. Yep, one bite at a time works. <laughs> well, Dr. Walco, thank you so much again for your time. We really appreciate having you on the show and I really look forward to working with you more in the future. Great, Dan, thanks again. It was a great time. Uh, I appreciate you having me.